Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 280th episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is sure to spark joy. She's a Japanese Mary Poppins of sorts, an organizing consultant who, drawing upon her years of experience helping people around the world to clean up their homes, created what she calls the KonMari method of tidying, which has been at the center of multiple best-selling books that she has authored and of tidying up with Marie Kondo a Netflix reality series that she hosted earlier this year that became an international sensation, the great Marie Kondo. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 34-year-old and I discussed the roots of her interest in tidying, how tidying for friends became a part-time job and then a booming business, how the KonMari method evolved into what it is and how the books about it led to the Netflix series, how, in turn, the Netflix series has changed so many lives, including her own, plus much more. So, without further ado, and with the assistance of Kondo's translator, Marie Lita, let's go to that conversation. Marie, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a thrill to have you here, and we always begin with just a few basic questions. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan, and my father was a physician, and my mother was a full-time housewife. And how large and how tidy of a home did you grow up in? So the house that I grew up in was a very typical Japanese home, so quite small, about a thousand square feet, I would say. And although it wasn't very messy on the surface, in the storage we had quite a lot of things. (laughs) And when did you first display an interest in tidiness. I read that there were home magazines around the house, things like that, that might have been the first kernel of the of the interest. Oh, that's right. Uh, my mother was actually subscribed to a lot of magazines, monthly magazines um, gar- garnered towards uh, housewives. And for me, even as a little girl, the content of those magazines was, I was so fascinated by them. And so as you were just, you know, developing a personality as a child, what sort of a child were you? How did you choose to spend your discretionary time? So for me, I was very, uh, I was very much an introvert, even as a child. Um, I like to spend my time at home rather than go play outside. So, and I really enjoyed um, housework. And when I would be staying at home all by myself, I would take cleaners and bleaches and 
clean the kitchen until it sparkled. And how did your parents feel about this interest of yours? It's where it doesn't sound like they were as invested in cleanliness and tidiness. So um what did they make of all of this? Of course, they thought it was a little peculiar that I was so interested in invested in tidying. And, but uh, in the beginning, they were completely on board. So I want to ask you about what sounds like was the turning point of your life, really, in a way. You have said, quote, Every day I would come home from school, and even before I took off my uniform, I would start rummaging for things to throw out. There was never peace in my heart. I was always just stressed out. The stress continued to build until one day I just completely passed out, close quote. So you literally collapsed, and if so, what do you think caused that? It's actually a true story. I did lose consciousness for a while, and I think it, it, it was due to the fact that my heart was never satisfied. Every day I would tidy, but I would never be satisfied, and the stress just accumulated. My losing consciousness was a result of tossing things out and just focusing on that and, and accumulated stress. So I think I lost consciousness for about two hours. Wow. So did you do anything about this? Did you see a doctor? Well, this is not a normal occurrence. No, I, I didn't feel that I needed to see a doctor. This was after school. I would usually be uh, tidying and cleaning after school, and my family was also at home. But um, they didn't know that I was tidying and, and tidied so much that I lost consciousness in my in my room. So they had no idea. But I naturally came to, so I, I figured I'd be fine. <laughs> so I mean this in a—I mean, no disrespect with this question, but I'm curious, is there any chance that— you have or had or or at some point have had obsessive compulsive disorder i don't know if i would call my interest obsessive compulsive um it's rather that i always had a huge appetite for exploration when it comes to tidying the topic of tidying i don't think i'm obsessive compulsive because i don't mind going into dusty places or picking up things that are dirty i don't mind that at all it's just that i've always when i was a little girl i always wondered why is it that no matter how much we tidy we always return to clutter it just gets all cluttered again and i was also also interested in housework at large, not just tidying, but sewing, cooking, and so on. But the concept of tidying was always a, a kind of a conundrum for me, because no matter how much we tidy, we always return to clutter. And we, right. I wanted to know why that was. How much do you think growing up in Japanese society shaped you? I was able to spend a little time when I was younger in Kyoto, and I was always very struck by how immaculate the rock gardens and the sand gardens and the shrines and the temples are. It's just a, and, and they have been for centuries, just beautifully maintained. Everything's perfect, in their place, logical. We don't have organization as ingrained in our society, I think, in America. Maybe certain places are designed and maintained in that way, but not in the way that they are in Japan. Is that something that you think really just seeped into you from having it all around you? Yeah, as exactly as you say, I think Japan, we all consider tidying to be a serious issue. And uh, if you go to a bookstore in Japan, there are whole shelves dedicated to topic of tidying and organization. So it's really a natural part of a way of life for us. And I think it helped me a lot that um, not just myself, but other Japanese people have always considered tidying to be a problem that needed to be resolved. And I should note just for our listeners, I'm not necessarily speaking about Tokyo, but in the historic parts of Japan, I don't think I ever saw a piece of litter. I mean, that's just something that is totally different than what we know in this country, right? 
So this yes, I completely agree. In Japan, I think there's a tendency to really take care of the places where you live, where you belong. In elementary school, students will often take turns cleaning the classroom. So it's very much a way of life. I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier about the fact that there are many books about tidying in Japan. How did you spend your 18th birthday? I spent my 18th birthday going to the National Library in Tokyo, and of course the National Library. All the books that have been published in Japan are assorted there, so I've always wanted to go there and, and study every last book on the topic of tidying that has been published in Japan. And I've wanted to go to this library ever since I was 15 years old, but I was not permitted until I was 18. So now it comes time for you to go off to university. I read you went to Tokyo Women's Christian University. What did you study there and what was the subject of the thesis that you wrote while you were there? I studied sociology in university and the topic of my thesis was tidying and organizing from a gender perspective. Assuming that that was your topic of that you suggested to your professor that this is what you wanted to do, how was that received and what did you find through your research? Of course, my professor told me that I was the very first person to make tidying into a thesis topic, but he was not that surprised by that because in the second year of my university, I was already um, beginning my work as a tidying consultant, I've, and everybody knew that I was always interested in the topic of tidying. So I had quite the reputation as a tidying fanatic among my friends. Well, so yeah, I wanted to ask you about the, what you were doing outside of class while you were in college because I had read that you were starting to help others, but it's not like it's a, at least to me, I'd never heard of a tidying consultant before I heard of you. I wonder, had you heard of other tidying consultants who did this as a way to, you know, as part of their living? I had no idea that tidying could become a job one day. When I entered university, um, I would just approach any friends or any acquaintances I knew who were living on their own, and I would just beg them to let me tidy, let me come to your apartment and tidy. And I just, for me, for myself, I just wanted the experience of learning how to tidy other people's space. But rumors spread very quickly. People began to know that when I came to visit your house, your home will be very, very tidy and clean. <laughs> and it just took off like that, and and gradually, um, strangers, I people that I didn't know about would contact me and say, if, if you come in to my apartment and tidy, I would pay you for your services. Mm -hmm. I think you had another job while you were in college that also shaped the KonMari method that we now know from the books and TV. What were you doing at a Shinto shrine? So I had this job as a shrine maiden for five years while I was going to the university. I've always loved the environment within the Shinto shrines in Japan. Ever since I was in elementary school, even long before I was a university student, I always felt that once I entered into a Shinto shrine, my heart would become purified and I would start to understand more what was important to me. It felt like a return to form and it was very similar to the experience that or the feeling that I get when I tidied in anyone's space. And the two actually kind of merge when you talk about ascribing feelings to objects, right? So when you go into a home and you want to thank the home, greet the home, or when you're holding objects and saying, we don't want to fold it this way because it would be disrespectful to the shirt, that whole idea that things can have feelings that aren't technically alive, that comes from Shintoism? 
そうですね。I think for me, appreciating things and seeing into the souls that are infused into things came out of all the experiences that I've had with tidying. So it was not so much the Shintoism or working in a shrine that affected me. I say that because in Japan, the Shinto, the space is not considered so much a religious space, but it's just part of everyday life. We're grateful to have that space within our lives. So I would say it's more of an everyday, my personal experiences I've had through all. All the tidying that I did. Interesting. Well, one last question about your college years. I believe it was while you were a student that you met the man who would eventually become your husband. Was he already a tidy person? And if he was not, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining that it could have really gone very far. I, so, how important was it that somebody that you would be in a relationship with also be tidy? So, yes, my husband, fortunately, even when I met him um, in, as a university student, he was very good at tidying. He was very organized. But in college, we were just friends, and we were friends for eight years. So I didn't look at him as a potential mate. And could he or could he not tidy was not something that I considered. <laughs> But I did read, I think, in one of your books that when you did decide, after you'd gotten married and you moved in together, He had learned how to behave by that point for sure, right? How much stuff did he arrive with when you moved in together? My husband just had five boxes of his personal belongings that had been narrowed down. <laughs> were, they, were they categorized in your five categories? Yeah, it did have five categories. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at the time that you graduated from college, how did you expect to spend the rest of your life? How were you going to make a living in your mind at that time? So I never imagined that tidying could become my professional work. So I actually just work at a recruiting agency company. And on the weekends, I would do as a side job for my tidying. You have written that, quote, putting your house in order is the magic that creates a vibrant and happy life, close quote. So as you started doing this more and more and were working in different people's homes, tidying, helping them to tidy their lives, what was it that That made you reach that conclusion. I mean, why does it make a difference in the way we feel if we're surrounded by neatness or messiness? So I've gradually understood that tidying is a very introspective process. It's it's a through tidying and through our belongings we can better consider、um, how we want to live our lives. So once you finish tidying, the decision making skills that you garnered can be applied to other areas of your life, whether it is job or interpersonal relationships, and therein it contributes to your overall well-being. So at what point did you decide, rather than working at this company that you were working at? That you were going to take a risk, and or maybe it didn't feel like a risk, but that you were going to go off and make tidying other people's homes your full time profession. So I've worked for two years at this company, it's a staffing company, and、uh, I worked there for two years as a sales associate. And one of my clients was a, an owner of a company, was a president. And when I visited this client, I noticed that his desk was rather messy. So I said, before we start talking about staffing your company, let's let's work on your desk a little bit. <laughs> and that was really an opportunity for me to really consider how my tidying can benefit others. And I started giving tidying lessons to other managers,、um, business owners. 
hours and so on, and gradually, my part-time job became even more busier than my full-time job. So before I would go to work, in the morning, 7 to 9 a.m., I would be giving tidying lessons. And even after work, same thing, my tidying lessons would go on. And at my company as well, I would give tidying lessons to my colleagues and even superiors. So once my uh, part-time job started to occupy my time, mornings till night, on weekdays and even weekends, that's when I started understanding maybe I needed to make the shift. And so if somebody wanted to hire you, how would they do that? Did they just they would just call up your home or they would send you an email or I read that at one point you had a and I'm sure it's always remained the case since you started to develop a wait list. So back then I had a blog, so a lot of my clients would contact me and request my services through my blog. So, But it was a risk to immediately go to a stranger's home, so I, what I would do is meet them first at a cafe and uh, hear more about their lives, learn more about them, and give basic lectures on tidying, and then I would go into their homes. I would guess that between the time that you first started tidying and the time of the publication of your first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing, which was in 2011, in between those two periods, there must have been many, many, many homes that you helped to tidy. We've seen how patient and calm you are when you go into the homes in the on the Netflix show, but has there ever been a time when you walked into a home, took a look around, and said, you know what? Forget it. Not even I can help you. I'm sorry. I've never turned down anyone because of the state of their home. But I have said I cannot give you a tidying lesson because and that had something to do with the client, not necessarily their home. Mm-hmm. So when did you first sit down and say, wait a minute, I from all the things that I've learned, I actually sort of have a method that I can map out and sort of apply to any situation, every situation, and then why did you call it the KonMari method instead of the Kondo method or something else? A KonMari actually has been my nickname ever since I was in elementary school. Oh. Mm. I think my method, once I became independent and uh, organizing consultant and that became my professional job, the basic form of the method has already been established. So I think it's been gradually building ever since I began tidying other people's home and went back when I was a university student. What made you decide to sit down and take what you've learned and put it into a book for the first time in 2011? You then did it again in 2016 with Spark Joy. So setting aside, though, the amazing way the books have been received, just why did you decide to do them in the first place? Back when I was an organizing consultant, I had a six-month-long wait list, and a lot of my clients would tell me that I can't wait that long. So (laughs) I knew that if I could create my method into a book form, that would be very beneficial to my clients. So I think that was the reason. So when The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up was published, it was first in 2011 in Japan, but then in America, it was published, I believe, in 2014. And at first, I don't think it was... A phenomenon. It's, I read that what started that maybe the people discovering it was that a New York Times home section reporter stumbled upon it, tried it out, tried out the method at home, and then wrote about it. So is that correct? And then if it is, after that article came out, how did your life change? Yes, you are correct about the uh, article. What surprised me after the uh, the New York Times article was published was I at the time I only had a Japanese language website, but I started receiving so many countless requests and messages in English inquiring about my book. 
And at that time, you were still living in Japan and had no plans to be doing this internationally. I don't think you were tidying homes outside of Japan at that time, right? No, uh, my plan was to continue tidying in Japan, within Japan. <laughs> so now the book starts taking off, becomes a bestseller in many, many countries. And even back then, I think people should realize years before the TV show, suddenly your name was a verb. People were Marie Kondoing their house. What did you make of this suddenly? I mean, it's it was the first sense of really, I would think, having your work be appreciated in a major, massive way. What's that like? This was not something that I predicted at all, so I was quite shocked that the book was embraced in this way. But I've always had a very strong belief, just a lot of confidence in the fact that tithing has the power to change your life. And to hear so many people around the world embody that is just phenomenal. Can I ask you about a few of the specific aspects of the of the method? I, just a little more detail about them. I mean, very famously, you are all about holding on to things that spark joy. That's the phrase you talk about. What does it mean if you could break it down to spark joy? And how did you first realize that that was the key to everything? So the question of what sparks joy is really about asking yourself, would this item bring you happiness? And when we tidy, we tend to focus on what to eliminate from our lives, what we can toss out. But this method doesn't really fulfill your heart. Um, and the reason is because you're constantly looking at the negative aspects of your things when you're looking for things to eliminate from your life. But rather than that, I, I knew that by asking ourselves, does this item spark joy, it allows you to naturally focus on the positive aspects of the things of your belongings. And it also allows you to cherish the things that you've decided to keep. So you also believe in tidying in a very specific order. You talk about clothes, then books, then papers, then miscellaneous items, then sentimental items. Why go in that way instead of just room by room? I think there was a time in your life when you believed, you know, like many people would think that is the logical way to do it. But instead you arrived at this order. Why? The reason why going by category, ordered category rather than location is that, take for instance the category of clothes, I always tell people to gather all of your clothes at once before you tidy. And what this allows you to do is to really accurately grasp how much you have in each category. You can visually see how much quantity you have in the category of clothes. And if, when you're tidying by location, all, the, all these categories are scattered everywhere around your home, so it's very difficult for you to grasp just exactly how much you have and also how much you need mm -hmm. in this category. So, and also the specific order is designed so that you're constantly honing your sensitivity to joy. So the most difficult items to choose from such as sentimental items are safe for the end when you've sufficiently honed your decision-making right. ability. The last sort of one of these that I just have to ask because I, it's the only one that I've had any real skepticism about because I, I think you're brilliant and I, I shouldn't, you know, I'm not trying to question it, but the idea of folding t-shirts and jeans and things into tiny rectangles, doesn't that wrinkle them? So, of course, compared to hanging your clothes, of course, it'll wrinkle more if you put, make them into rectangles. But when it comes to folding clothes, it doesn't make too much of a difference in terms of wrinkles. So, and I, and I very much espouse filing your clothes vertically and rolling them up and filing them vertically. And this is very efficient in terms of working in a small space. So that yes. was one of the reasons. Yes. 
So can the KonMari method be applied to other things like technology? I mean, we all have too many emails and photos and videos and maybe Facebook friends. How about actual human beings? Do our lives sometimes get too cluttered with people who, when you really think about it, don't spark joy for us and who we could just as easily thank and send on their way? Do you think this is something that, that does apply beyond the home? Exactly as you say, when a lot of my clients tidy through the Komari method, um, it's they really get to learn more about themselves. And with the wisdom that they gain through tidying, they can, of course, apply that sometimes to human relationship as well. So <laughs> relationship that have really overstayed its welcome, they are able to let go. <laughs> so you moved to America in 2016, I believe. And you've said on your show that one of the things that has struck you is that living spaces in Japan are generally smaller than they are in America, which maybe necessitates keeping fewer things and being more organized. Having now lived in America for a few years, do you find that Americans tend to be more materialistic, maybe to hoard more stuff? And do you think it has anything to do with the fact that if you have more space to fill, people want to fill it? And I would just quickly add, have you found that even you accumulate more stuff in this country. In terms of materialism, I wouldn't say there's not much difference between Japanese people and Americans. But as you say, I do think Americans do get to keep a greater number of things inside their home because they simply have the capacity. They simply have bigger storage spaces. And to answer your last question, yes, even myself, when I moved to the U.S., now that I have a bigger storage space, there have been a little bit of an increase in the things, the number of things that I keep, especially food products. I think I have about twice as much as I I used to really? Okay. Well, you're still, unlike many of us, you're still very skinny. So don't let it. <laughs> so how do you feel about putting things in storage? On the one hand, it's out of the house. So I would think that it's not, you know, affecting your mood in the same way that if, if it were there, but it's still available if you one day decide that it does spark joy for you, something that you otherwise would have thrown out. So what do you think about storage? I don't think there's anything necessarily bad about having a storage, especially for seasonal items or ski gears and so on. And if you if you have a very particularly limited storage space in your home, I think it's completely logical to have storage. But what's interesting about storage spaces is that once you put an item inside there, you completely forget its existence. So what I recommend a lot of my readers and clients is to, when you're going through your things with the Komari method, really tidy your storage as well to really so that you can confront all of your belongings at right. once. You can't hide secrets from yourself. <laughs> so you told a reporter that each night, quote, we give the children a bath, eat dinner, then tuck them in. I have taught myself to block their mess out until they go to sleep. Then I declutter everything into individual baskets, books, puzzles, stuffed toys. I always say everything has a home, close quote. So how do you feel about throwing out the belongings of your children. My grandmother wanted to tidy her home after my father went to college. Like many people of his generation, she threw out his baseball card collection. If she hadn't done that, I would be living on a yacht right now. So I guess I'm just curious, should you only be doing this with your personal possessions or can a parent do it for a child? So this Absolutely. When it comes to making the decision of what to let go or what to keep, that's the responsibility of each person, and you should just be responsible for your own belongings. I have a very bitter memory. Back in high school, I used to tidy my family members' belongings without permission, and uh, my parents banned me from tidying. So I speak from experience when I say, stick to your own items. <laughs> okay, so I want to—we come now to the, the Netflix show, which is— 
you know, many people knew about and really respected you before the show, but this must have changed everything. So where did the idea of building a TV show around you first begin? I, I heard something that was it maybe really Gail Berman and her company in this country that started it? Yes, uh, Gail from Jackal Group approached me through my agent who was handling the publishing of my books as well. And so the, originally, though, it sounds like they were thinking about making a scripted show inspired by you. So there would be a character on a sitcom I read. At one point, it was going to maybe be a NBC or Fox show where it would be you would be a character. It wasn't actually you. So how did that evolve from that idea to what we now know from Netflix? Yes, it's, it's true that uh, it began with a scripted version, but um, I would have to ask my production side, and especially my husband who handled yes. all the production side, to, to understand how it morphed into what it ultimately became. But um, when it came down to it, what was most important for us was to capture the moment when people's lives changed as a result of tidings. So that was very important to sh for us to show that. So that's how we uh, knew that it would be very important to work with normal, everyday people. Yes. I don't know if you you've seen these movies before, but the two that came to mind when I first heard about and saw what, what you do on your show, Mary Poppins, where somebody comes in to somebody else's home and just fixes everything. And then The Odd Couple, where one of the people, you know, jolts the other person by being very obsessively clean and the other guy's a slob. So have you ever seen anyone like you in a show or movie before? I saw Mary Poppins when I was a very young, very little girl, and I never, people have told me um, that, that the show reminded them of Mary Poppins and so on, and sometimes perhaps there are similarities, but the funny thing is, I myself don't really feel that it was my contribution that changed other people's lives. I'm more of the messenger, the medium that tells the benefit of tidying, and it's, it's the people themselves who made the decision to change their lives that allow these changes to occur, so... It might sound strange since I'm the host of the show, but I don't feel very much that I'm the protagonist. <laughs> right. Well, I, I want to just ask you some specifics about the show because it's amazing. There's eight episodes. That means eight different couples, of course, and that you did it over just a few weeks. So how did you guys identify the couples that you wanted to feature on the show? Were there maybe more than eight and these just ended up being the ones that were the most interesting? Or was it always these eight for some reason? So my husband was very instrumental. He was the executive producer in uh, choosing these eight families. But we always knew that my method can be applied to a variety of people from all walks of life. So representing diversity was very important to us. And uh, families that were positive about going through on this process was a deciding factor as well. And it's amazing. You seem to have saved marriages and helped people to overcome grief and all kinds of things. And in some ways, the most amazing part about it is that Unlike a lot of other self-improvement shows out there, whether it's Queer Eye for the Shrake Eye or many other things, you don't appear to stay and do everything for the people. It's you give them the guidebook and then, as you say, they they choose to do it. But there's something that obviously you went in there and did that motivated them because they weren't doing it before you showed up. So can you pinpoint what it is that makes you so convincing and motivational to people? 
そして、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私たちは、私た
I would love to take it on as long as people want to see it. But it's not been confirmed yet. We're negotiating right negotiating. now. Negotiating. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very excited and I appreciate all that you've done on the books and the show. I actually, my parents this past week sold the home that I grew up in as a child. So I have to go back next week to clean out all of my stuff and decide what to keep and whatnot. So I'm going to have you in the back of my head when I do this. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.